Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Matt Paxton is a decluttering expert, whom you may know from his many years on the show, Hoarders. He now hosts the PBS series Legacy List, which airs on our TV station, ATL-PBA. Later, Matt Paxton will tell us why Legacy List is part Antiques Roadshow and part Finding Your Roots. First, we're off to the movies. The new virtual film series from Emory Cinematheque explores generations of filmmakers who advance the medium in radical ways. The online screenings are offered free to the public, and the series runs through March 19th. New Cinematic Directions features six films curated by Emory Honors student Evan Amaral. He joins us now with Matthew Bernstein, Professor of Film and Media Studies at Emory. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I really appreciate you having us here to um, and having me here to get to talk about this. Evan, you programmed this series as part of your honors thesis project on film festivals. Matthew, you supervised Evan as his professor. Have other Emory students curated a film festival? Never, never. I mean, well, students might put something together, but they've never collaborated with our long-standing Emory Cinematheque. So, you know, we're expanding the idea of the honors thesis at Emory and what undergraduate seniors of outstanding academic standing can do. So, uh, you know, we have students making films, they're writing feature length screenplays, but Evan is a pioneer. And uh, this is just a very exciting project because we as a department are very committed to the exhibition of films, whether they're classics or as Evan has selected, films that never played in Atlanta. And in one case, a group of films that I'm not sure have been shown much in all of the United States, the films by Sarah Mulderor, the African-American filmmaker. So this is a great fit. It's a great opportunity for Evan, who's done a lot of research. He's talked to people at the Film Forum 
in New York, and of course our own Atlanta Jewish Film Festival, as well as the Atlanta Film Festival, to get a sense of what's involved in programming and curating a film series. Evan, please tell us about the inspiration for this film and conversation series. When I was a freshman at Emory, I remember uh, I moved from a very, very small town in rural Georgia and grew up loving all sorts of art cinema and stuff that I had a really hard time accessing where I lived. And when I got to college uh, and got to Atlanta, I was like, oh my God, yes, I can come finally see all of these movies. And I got there and I couldn't because not everything, you know, a lot of things that I wanted to see in terms of non-Western cinema, more avant-garde cinema were just not really showing. So I went to the department with an idea to start developing a film series, which my first edition of which I organized when I was a sophomore um, called Not Coming to a Theater Near You. And then there was supposed to be a second version of that last March, which we had to cancel due to COVID and the university closing. So ultimately, when it came time for me to do an honors thesis, I knew I wanted to do something that was an extension of programming work that I'd been doing for the past two years. And so this project kind of came about over a year of kind of working it through with Dr. Bernstein and with uh, the other faculty and professors that I work with. And also, like Dr. Bernstein was just saying, interviewing lots of other programmers and curators from around the country. You know, I spoke to the ones that he mentioned, but I also spoke to uh, some folks at the New York Film Festival, uh, which had a really successful online iteration uh, back in October, and to a few uh, independent curators scattered throughout the country. I particularly want to shout out no Evil Eye I'm out of Cleveland and um, Upside Film Festival out of Harlem. AJ and Rooney have been wonderful, uh, helping me kind of think through ways to work through kind of trying to make film programming more accessible to people, which was definitely a big part of thinking through how I wanted to organize the series. I wanted it to be as straightforward and participatory as possible, uh, as much as we can virtually. I think ultimately, like the the important thing we have to do here is create a space to commune with cinema and to get to talk about it, especially when when I'm screening films that are very much outside of you know any sort of expectations that most people would have of what cinema can and should do. The first film in this series is Too Late to Die Young. The film is set in Chile and was directed by Dominga Sotomayor. Why did she want to start with this film. I wanted to start with this one because this was one of three films. There's there's two others later on that I uh, carried over from my canceled series because I just loved them a lot and still wanted an opportunity to, um, to get to screen them. But I started with this one because Dominga Sotomayor made this film based on her own childhood growing up in a rural commune in Chile. And it's set in the summer after the uh, dictator Augusto Pinochet lost power. So the movie begins at this moment where you're following this teenage protagonist who is not only kind of trying to navigate the sort of window of adulthood that's opening up before her, but also the window of sort of newfound democracy in her country. I think it's a film that pays a lot of special attention to the feelings of like stasis that young people can feel in turbulent times in their lives, whether those are personal or whether those are on a more national scale. 
I wanted to start with this one because especially thinking about, you know, a lot of what I've felt as a graduating senior over the past year uh, and what a lot of my friends have been feeling and going through uh, in terms of kind of starting our lives in such a like difficult moment, um, you know, not only for, for our country, but for humanity in general. I think this is a really wonderful film that people will kind of have a certain like attachment to because of its sort of, it's working well within a coming of age genre. But I also think it's a very special film because it is incredibly personal, but it doesn't privilege our access as viewers in a way that I think sets everyone, uh, sets the viewers up for the kinds of films that we'll be screening later in the series. Uh, ones where you are definitely going to be encountering filmmakers and subjects that are potentially very unfamiliar to you, but that you don't have the level of access to that you would in, let's say like a Hollywood film. It's allowing all of these kinds of threads that I'm trying to build later in the program to begin, but also to give, especially like the uh, student viewers out there, a chance to see a film that's gonna kind of like reflect their own anxieties and be a way to kind of like work through all of that through the space of the movie. Yeah. The second film will be To the Ends of the Earth from the Japanese director Kiyoshi Kurosawa. He's famous for his horror films. What's this film about? Kiyoshi Kurosawa, I think, is a, is a really interesting filmmaker in this sort of contemporary sphere because he, he, he very much began his career making not only horror films, but also erotic films and other sorts of like low, very low brow genre fare, uh, but has very much expanded into many, many different genres. He's had, you know, Ken prize winning dramas under his belt, as well as teen sci-fi films. And so I think he's really special uh, and very contemporary in that regard that he has a very particular style that's built around sort of tension and catharsis that he can apply to all of these different genres. Similarly to uh, Too Late to Die Young, I think the first few films in the series, even though we have a mix of films by established filmmakers and uh, more kind of emerging filmmakers, there's this quality to both of these first two films that is very much about uh, like young women specifically kind of trying to deal with very new and very alien like circumstances and environments. Uh, because this is a film about a, um, a young woman who is a travel TV host from Japan, who goes to shoot an episode in Uzbekistan and is very much just kind of immediately humbled by the experience and has to withdraw within herself to kind of cope with the, what it makes visible about her own life and her own fears and desires, but also the, immediate ways that it makes her privilege as a Japanese person visible. And it's just a very fascinating and complicated film. And it's very funny and incredibly moving. And that's another reason I wanted to kind of have it at the beginning, because I think it's a, it's a great film to kind of whet people's appetites. It's definitely not in much of a familiar genre mode, but it's going to have these like very familiar kind of like emotional beats that I think people are really going to, that are going to resonate with people. Yeah. Another film in this series is an Oscar contender called Vitalina Varela, directed by the Portuguese filmmaker Pedro Costa. Varela herself plays 
the title role, and she even co-wrote the film. Would you tell us the story of how this film was made? Pedro Costa, and specifically his work with the actress Fidelina Varela and uh, the actor Ventura, it's one of the most fascinating kind of working relationships in contemporary cinema to me, because Costa, ever since the early 2000s, has been working on a cycle of films where he's worked with a group of largely Cape Verdean immigrants in the slums outside of Lisbon. And in all of these films, they spend around, usually around like five or six years making a film. Costa and the performers, you know, sort of like share space and live together. And um, all of the performers play usually loosely fictionalized versions of themselves uh, without a script that they all kind of work out together. And Vitalina Varela is, I think, really extraordinary because Costa did not meet Vitalina until his previous film that he was making, but she came with a very fascinating story, which was that she came to Portugal to be with her husband who had been living there for decades working. But when she got off the plane, she learned that he had died recently before she got there. Uh, so she was left to kind of negotiate this new country and this new space and these new kinds of spaces of different kinds of oppressions uh, that she would experience back home in Cape Verde. Um, and I think it's an incredibly beautiful film. It's a very challenging film because uh, Costa's style is very, he's trying to capture intimate feelings with his characters without letting us in on anything that they aren't going to share with us. Uh, so everything is very, very slow and deliberate and shot in close up. And there's a lot of focus just put onto the way that shadows travel across a character's face rather than what they're necessarily saying. So I think it's a very interesting window forward for what cinema can achieve as a collaborative medium. And also in terms of what a sort of like quote unquote slow aesthetic can achieve in a viewer. It's definitely probably the most challenging to watch film out of all of the ones that I've programmed. But I think it's a very good way to introduce viewers to this mode of cinema that has been developing and building for probably two decades now in the international sphere that is based around the like experience of time and of duration and what that does to the viewer. You know, one of the great strengths of the series Evan has put together is that we have filmmakers from around the globe. I mean, Latin America, East Asia, Portugal, Africa, uh, and then two American filmmakers. So, I mean, it's, it's a really rich program exposing us to films that are not readily available and certainly have never been screened in Atlanta. That's just a real strength. Film professor Matthew Bernstein and honor student curator Evan Amaral will be back with more about Emory's free virtual film series after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Emory Film Professor Matthew Bernstein and honor student curator Evan Amaral. We're discussing Emory Cinema Tech's free virtual film series, New Cinematic Directions. The centerpiece of the series is a four-film mini-retrospective of works by the Angolan filmmaker Sarah Maldoror, the first woman of African descent to write and direct a feature film. Here, Evan describes the works of Maldoror to be shown. I will be screening four of her short and medium length films because her only surviving feature is, is in the process of getting some restoration work done. But Maldor's daughter, Anushka de Andrade, is kind enough to join us to give a presentation after the films about her mother's life and work. And she and her sister have been working very tirelessly for years now, kind of trying to get the rights back to her mother's work and to restore and resubtitle it. This little retrospective is just kind of part of working with them to get her work out there and available to a new generation because it's languished in relative unavailability for, for decades now, uh, even though she has an incredibly large body of work. A lot of that has had to do with rights holders and of course the politics of her being an anti-colonial filmmaker from Angola and largely working in Europe and that European distributors don't, don't wanna like touch those films. So the four films that we're screening are, um, one of them is her first short that she ever made, uh, Monangambe, which was made with the uh, People's Liberation Army in Angola during their war for independence. And it's a short about a guerrilla fighter who is captured by the uh, Portuguese and subject to torture and questioning. And it's essentially about his wife trying to reach him via the like gift of food. And the film was used uh, similarly to her uh, feature, Sambizanga, as a way to kind of help build solidarity and support for that liberation movement. Then the, uh, the second film of hers we're showing is called A Dessert for Constance, uh, which is a real kind of, it's, I hope that this selection <coughs> of films can show off just how diverse her body of work was. Because A Dessert for Constance is this light comedy that she made for French television about two African immigrants who are street cleaners in Paris and discover a French cookbook on the job one day. Um, and when one of their comrades at their boarding house falls ill and needs to return home to Africa, they decide to put their newfound culinary knowledge to the test uh, to try to raise money to send him home. And then the other two films, Leon J. Damas and Aya Pour Césaire, are documentaries that Maldor made about two of her personal friends that she made several films about throughout her career, um, Leon Damas and Aimee Césaire, the two great Negritude poets, 
she was specifically very connected to that movement um, because she met a lot of them in school, even though uh, in France, even though she was trained as a filmmaker in Moscow. They are these wonderful, incredibly poetic and personal sort of like documents that are like dedicated to these important figures. And she really kind of takes testimonies from their families and friends and their other artistic and intellectual colleagues from the time, kind of speaking to the, like, the importance that these figures hold in the history of the African diaspora and in the history of like, pursuing Black liberation as art and the importance that they hold as artists in that role. Those are the four films that were uh, showing of hers. And like I said, her, her daughter Anuchka will be uh, joining us on March 13th for presentation and Q&A session. Sadly, Maldoror passed away from COVID-19 last year. Yes, she did. I was interested in reading about the barriers she broke and being referred to as the mother of African cinema by featuring Pedro Costa and Sarah Maldoror back-to-back. You juxtapose the work of a white male Portuguese filmmaker with that of a black woman whose directorial debut centers on an Angolan political prisoner you described, a political prisoner of the Portuguese colonial government. That seems a very pointed decision, Evan. (laughs) Tell us about the message you are hoping viewers take away. There's, There's less of a message there, but what I want that to do is open up a conversation about the, like, meanings of different kinds of representation now, especially since the question of, like, authorship and the representative turn is one of your big questions in cinema, and especially since Maldor was working very heavily in documentary and Costa works very much in a semi-documentary mode, that it opens up this question of looking at these films back and forth, kind of like, what are these different power relationships will look like? When Costa is collaborating with largely Black actors and collaborators, I hope what this does is it helps kind of draw out, like, what is his gaze versus her gaze necessarily? Um, and what are the productive tensions between those? There isn't a message per se there because Costa is very much engaged in a what, what he considers to be a liberatory mode of filmmaking, uh, which of course that's up for question. Um, that is, that's not taken for granted or anything. I think it's interesting that these films ultimately ostensibly have very similar goals, but that they're gonna play really differently because, simply because of like the, uh, the perspective of who's behind the camera. And I hope showing the Maldor films immediately after his kind of helps us see just like how incredibly potent and powerful and like these, uh, these films and these perspectives are coming like actually from an African woman and how even as, you know, strange and different and groundbreaking in ways that Kosa's style may be that it ultimately like, it, it doesn't hold a candle to the feeling and what comes from Maldor's perspective. The final two films in this series were produced in the U.S. and directed by Black men. One of them is Black Mother by the documentary filmmaker Khalik Allah. 
And it tells the story about the nation of Jamaica, particularly women of Jamaica. How does Black Mother challenge the medium of film? I think Kaligala is one of the most exciting documentary filmmakers because he uh, he comes from a, a photography background, particularly street portraiture. He became most well-known for working on a specific street corner in Harlem and taking these sorts of very dynamic street portraits of people that he met there. And he applies that style very much to his cinema. It is, it's one that is a documentary but exists very much in this poetic mode where so much of the film are these sort of very dynamic moving portraiture shots where you're also getting testimony from the people that he's shooting and uh, over the voiceover. So he's very much interested in this dissonance between what the sound and the image can produce. And I, I think that his film and the next film kind of work together very well because they are films about kind of taking the past and the present and kind of forcing them together and colliding them and creating this kind of like multifaceted sensorial portrait um, of, you know, specifically life in Jamaica in this case, uh, because he traces the history from the colonial era to the present uh, and also specifically works mainly through female perspectives uh, and is working through a much broader metaphor of a nation as motherhood in ways that I think are really interesting, and especially the ways that that's tied to Jamaican religion. He spends a lot of time with, uh, the whole last third of the film is dedicated to kind of trying to become whatever the formal cinematic equivalent of a prayer would be. Um, so I, I do think he is really kind of pushing the, the medium of documentary specifically in some really interesting and challenging directions that people will not have seen before. The grand finale of the series is a film called The Inheritance, based on Ephraim Asili's own experiences living in a commune of Black radical thinkers. How does this movie blend documentary and narrative film? I wanted to end on this film specifically because Asili speaks specifically in some interviews that I've seen about kind of trying to create create the film version of a collage here, uh, which I think is really fascinating. The film basically has like three different components that are all kind of edited together into this collage. One of them is a scripted narrative based on, like you said, on Ossie Lee's experience living in a black radical commune in Philadelphia. Uh, and you're following this mix of actual young activists who are non-actors and also professional actors that he had stay in a home for a number of days while they shopped. And what you see is, you see all of these characters kind of negotiating like the different rules of the house. How are they gonna go about uh, engaging with the community and organizing events and opening up their home to people? In our traditional African society, we were individuals within a community. We took care of our community and our community took care of us. In 1985, they came out to our home, attacked our home, and they dropped a bomb on our house. And then that is mixed with a documentary recollection on 
the uh, 1985 bombing of the Philadelphia Black Liberationist Group move uh, by the Philadelphia Police Department, which left several people dead, um, including children. And it's the, the film is kind of dealing with the sort of push and pull between these young characters' desires to kind of like really try to get out there and do something better for the community with the reality of the state violence that the people that came before them have faced, uh, just trying to do the same thing. And then the other component of the film is it's very attentive to the Black literary and musical traditions that are coming out of Philadelphia and of the United States broadly. And there's a lot of attention paid to records, books. There's a few poetry readings in the film, uh, including one, uh, one by Sonia Sanchez. It's very much this like real kind of thrilling, energetic whirlwind of all of these different reference points. And I think it's a great film to end with because it's very much about how we have to engage with the archive from the past to kind of find a way forward now and how we can use all of these different pieces of culture to kind of inform where we go in the future. And when I think people feel as stuck as they do now, that's a really kind of like, like I said, when I saw this film for the first time back in October, I knew I wanted to show it because it just like totally blew me away. And it's kind of, and it's sprawl and in its energy and, and just how much it manages to tackle. I am really excited to get to share this film with everyone as, as the, the closing film in the series. You know, and uh, I think it's, it's clear from Evan's uh, discussion of the films, how carefully he's crafted the sequence of the series. And there's a nice symmetry in the fact that uh, the first film, Too Late to Die Young from Domingo Sotomayor and our closing film, The Inheritance, are about living collectively, uh, mm -hmm. living on a commune. Absolutely. So that's one other aspect of how Evan has structured the series. That's, they make uh, complementary bookends. Yeah, I, I really wanted to emphasize that we can, we can go to these works of cinema that are very far out of what we would expect to find like real world pointers as to like where to move forward as well as with what cinema can achieve because of course that is just as much in question as as and the future of cinema is just as in question as anything else right now and it's all completely like intimately connected so i i wanted seeing these films and having the open conversations about them that we're planning on having after each of the screenings as a way for anyone who shows up to kind of just get to talk through all of this stuff and work through it and to get to experience films that they otherwise wouldn't get to experience. Evan, you are a senior at Emory. Do you graduate in the spring? I do. I will graduate in May. What's next? To be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll figure that out. I still have a little bit of time for that. What I'm, you know, the, the immediate question is, getting this series off the ground and hopefully having it be a the welcoming space for people to come and see and talk about movies that I want it to be. I mean, that's that's what's in my immediate future for right now. And, you know, it's great for us because we can't obviously do a live Emory Cinematheque. And there are actually limits on what we could do if we were going to do one of our more conventional series like the films of Billy Wilder or you know, American comedy classics or something else. So 
to be able to show these films that are not available, not well known in the online format is, is really tremendous. So we're actually in Evan's debt for putting this program together. Emory film professor Matthew Bernstein and honors student curator Evan Amaral. Emory Cinematech's virtual film series, New Cinematic Directions, is on through March 19th. More information about the free series will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There's real history in our attics and basements. That is a quote from Matt Paxton, a decluttering expert with an enormous following and host of Legacy List with Matt Paxton, a PBS series airing nationally and on our PBS station, ATL PBA. He joins us now via Zoom. Matt, welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me. How did you become a decluttering, downsizing expert? Well, I jokingly say I failed at everything else, but uh, the truth is my, I lost my dad, my stepdad, and both my grandfathers all died in, in one year when I was a kid. Oh, how horrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, you know, it wasn't like a tragic bar fight or anything. It's just, just bad timing. And um, I had four houses to clean out and I was a 24 year old kid. And I remember just going through the house. I was grieving. I was sad. It was 21 years ago. And uh, I was just lost as a person. And I remember thinking, this is awful. And my grandfather had always said to me, if something's really awful, do it as a business because people will pay you to do it. <laughs> and man, he was right. What I didn't know is I would fall in love with the people and the stories. Uh, and that's really what distinguishes you from other shows. You did work on Hoarders. I did. 12 seasons I worked on Hoarders. I say it's the Mount Everest of decluttering. You know <laughs> I can clean a mess that big, but most people don't need me to. Okay. For those who may not be familiar with Antiques Roadshow and finding your roots, although we'd like to think that most of our listeners are because NPR and PBS go hand in hand, how would you describe Legacy List? Well... The way you just implied it, it's a good mix of Antiques Roadshow and Finding Your Roots. And I'm honored, to, when people say that, I'm honored to even be included with those two shows. But what we're doing is we're finding the items in your home and we share the really fond stories of your loved ones. And I think the difference is we purposefully don't talk about the financial value. We only want to know the emotional value. If this was your grandfather's, tell me about your grandfather. If this ring was your grandmother's, tell me about your grandma. I want to know the story. I don't care what it's worth. Who are the other experts on this show and what are their specialties? Our crew is kind of a unique crew. They're, they're friends from my past. You know, I, I've been on TV helping people for about 10 years now, but I've been doing it in real life for 20. And so these are people that I took from the real world. Mike Kelleher is really my pop culture expert. And he knows everything from, gosh, Pokemon cards to baseball cards to stamps 
to coins. I met him selling, he was selling antique Christmas sweaters out of his van. <laughs> and when I met him, I was like, what are you doing? He goes, I pick them up at flea, at, uh, flea markets all around the country. And then I sell them the month of December. And I was like, you just met the one guy in the world that you need to meet to do this. And we've been working together for 10 years. So he's really just the stuff you don't think about. Avi Hopkins uh, is a good friend. We actually ran track against each other in high school, believe it or not. He's a community uh, activist and organizer in, in Richmond, Virginia, and, and worked for me for many years. But he's kind of our military and faith expert, believe it or not, in African-American history. And so we that's actually new history when you think about it. There's, you know, it's less than 100 years, a lot of the artifacts attached to African-American history. And so he's, and, but he's also a military school guy. <laughs> he played football at VMI. And then Jamie is our clothes and really fashion expert. And believe it or not, we find a lot of clothes when we're helping people downsize. Oh, I'm not surprised at all. When you watch the show, you forget that it's really a show about downsizing. It was supposed to be a show about watching 65 plus people make that final decision of, you know, they're going to move out of the house they've been in for 30 to 50 years. And we, it kind of accidentally became a show about history. Really, I just, I love helping people clean out their attics and I, know, and I hear the great stories. And a lot of times the history that we, we didn't really anticipate this, every family has an amazing history. And so we just get lost in the stories of life and stuff. And we forget that people are moving. Well, what are the qualifications for each of the families to appear on this show? Qualifications, they need to be willing. That's number one. And when, you know, we're on season two, getting ready for season three, we're actually casting for season three now. For me, it's really about diversity, obviously, number one right now. We don't need to hear any more stories about the Civil War. We've covered that. Uh, we really want to hear stories that you just wouldn't know. The first episode, we had a lady that, we, we had a 44-star flag in her attic. And I said, well, how did you get it? She goes, well, my, my grandfather got it. I don't know how he got it. So we had to go find out that history. It turns out he was a train conductor. He happened to be the conductor on one of the trains that drove that day that Utah became a state. It ended up being her great-grandfather, not her grandfather. And it just the, the, the only assumption we can come up with is that the flag was on the train. And he thought, wow, I'll take it. <laughs> and Because there was no flag stores back then. And so for us, it's just someone that's curious and willing. We obviously like characters. The beauty of working with 70 and 80-year-olds is their filter is gone. And they tell us really great, amazing stories. Well, how do they apply to be on the show? I do a lot of, you know, I work with AARP. I'll work with Leading Age, which is a senior living community organization. Now people just watch it and they go on our website. They go to mylegacylist.com and they apply. It's usually like the oldest adult daughter or the oldest adult granddaughter. And they're typically calling us and saying, man, you got to feature my grandma or you got to feature my grandpa. Or they'll call and just say, hey, I got this one item. I don't know what it is. And we start to dig a little bit and we just get curious. And it's really fun. Even the casting. I mean, not every family gets to be on the show, but you know, I get to interview a lot of families that never even make the show. But they, you know, we say, oh, hey, I don't you're not going to make the show. But I know exactly what that silver is. And your grandmother would have had to have gotten it in England at this time frame. And then that helps them with their genealogical research or just their, you know, helps them get started. And that's, that's really fun. But for us, it's, you don't need to be famous. We just want you to be curious and open and willing to tell stories. Matt, you're talking about the fun. It must also be challenging to help people sort through their personal 
and emotionally valuable items. How do you help these individuals provide clarity as to what they should keep and what they should get rid of? That's one of my favorite questions. I think that's where my experience on hoarders really helped because I can tell you that the bad ending to that story, it all gets thrown away, you know? And so I help people really narrow in on their, and that's why we call it legacy list to say, what, you know, what are the five, six things that really matter in your life? What are the, you know, if your house catches on fire, you got two minutes, what are you going to grab? And that's such a morbid way to say it, but we just really try to focus on the positive. And, And that's one thing I love about this show is it's super positive. It's not negative. There's no drama. We just want to tell the good stories. And so we don't start in the attic because the attic and the basement and the garage is where you put things you don't want to address. And it's usually because something bad has happened, a lot, you know, a loss or death or, or, or divorce or something bad. And so what we typically do is we'll, we'll start somewhere fun and positive and we get humor going, but then we do when, when we know the person's ready, we, we head into the attic and we face the fears of those, those items, because so many times we put it up there because we want to avoid it. And we just say, hey, let's not avoid it. We got, you know, and if we have to bring a therapist, we bring a therapist, but we try to just have fun and we bring family involved and we and we get it to be a really positive thing. And I think people at the end of the day, believe it or not, being a good listener is really the most effective tool. We'll start conversations. Like I'll say, hey, here's a picture of you when you're 18. And I see that that is not your husband. Who is that man you're with, right? And then everybody starts laughing. And they're like, oh, that's Fernando. You know, and they all start laughing. <laughs> and so I get people telling good stories. And and that's just the way to start this process. And then, uh, and usually it just kind of rolls out from there. But you have to listen. You have to be willing to listen. And whether you're on a TV show or you're in the real life on your own at home, you've got to invest the time to hear these stories and to share them. Well, you mentioned not going into the attic, the basement, or the garage first off. I think that what overwhelms me is that things I have not addressed are unmade decisions. Listening to you talk, I am reminded that I have boxes of photographs from my mom who passed away 11 years ago and my mother-in-law who passed away eight years ago. And it's painful to look at those, but I am not proud of the fact, Matt, that I have these boxes effectively screaming at me. You're setting me up for my favorite quote which is give yourself some grace. When you put those boxes there, you needed to leave them there. Now you don't need them there. You've grown. And that sounds so cheesy, but they're stepping stones. I really love that. Our attic is a stepping stone when you think about it this way. When we put the items there, we weren't ready to address those feelings. And so it was safe place to put them there for the same reasons you just said it. But the guilt is something you can let go. You don't need to feel guilty about it. It's just now, it's, it's, it's time, and now you're in a place that you can go through them. One technique is to, I, you, I mean, you hit the hardest thing. Boxes of pictures from my mother. I don't care if you're 15, 50, or 100. That's a really, really tough relationship in a good way. 
and you feel we all feel guilty. Oh, my mom gets me. You know, I my mom's 72. We're really good friends, but I still feel really guilty when I let my mom down, right? In anything. And all my clients feel that way, no matter where they are in life. I'd be like, well, how would your mom feel about this? And she goes, Oh, my mom died in 73. And I'm like, well, do you think she'd be upset about it? And the lady goes, yes, she would. <laughs> and she's, you know, so we still, I think we forget our relationships still continue after someone's deceased. And so that's where that guilt's from. But I say, give yourself a little grace, man. You, you had to leave it there for a while. And, and sometimes, I mean, I just moved myself and I was going through stuff with my dad's that he left me 20 years ago. And I just wasn't ready to go through them yet. Well, I appreciate that kind advice. It's very sympathetic. Yeah, I read you recently moved from Richmond, Virginia to a house here in Georgia. And your fiance, Zoe Kim, designed this small minimalist house. Yes. She's also the author of Minimalism for Families. Since moving to Georgia in November, how does it feel to be living simpler? I have to tell you, I really like it. I was kind of against it. I was in a I'll believe it when I see it scenario. But, you know, the minimalistic spirit is right, which is less stuff leaves more room for life. And with seven kids, it really forces that. Like, if you're cleaning up after seven kids, there's no time for you and your spouse. And what we found is less stuff is just, it's great. I mean, we, we spend more time together as a family. We really are able to go out and do things. And I don't spend all my time cleaning up after everybody. I don't spend all my time doing yard work. I'm actually just hanging out and enjoying life. And it's funny stuff that I really struggled over. Should I bring it? Should I not? Somebody asked me, well, what did you leave behind? And I go, I don't remember. But I know I was really upset about it. Oh. <laughs> you know, if three months later, I don't, I don't know. Couldn't tell you what it was. It doesn't matter. You know, it's just stuff. And you know, you could wrap my whole career up in that. At the end of the day, it's just stuff. And if you've got your relationships and you've got your your health, I mean, this is so cheesy, but really that's all you need. You know, my grandparents, they lived off the land. I mean, they hunt and fish their own food, they grew their own food, they had their own energy. You talk about renewable energy, they were tough people. And they were some of the happiest people I ever met, you know? And so I'm, I'm learning to kind of live a much happier life with less. And that's definitely because of my fiance. What was it like filming during the pandemic? Season two was filmed after COVID hit. Yeah, we filmed right in the middle of COVID and Black Lives Matters. It was challenging and not for the reasons you would think. I mean, we're a big show on PBS. We have, we're a great production company. So safety was pretty standard. Social distancing and the masks. And we would take our masks off for the filming part, the talking part, but everyone behind the camera was masked all the time. The isolation for me was tough. I'm a people person. I need to, I mean, I help people for a living. So I need to hug them. I need to give high fives. The no hugging was really difficult because it's kind of a, a an easier way to avoid talking about your feelings. If you hug someone, you don't have to talk. And this is an emotional show. And when I wasn't allowed to hug or high five or shake hands, we were forced to deal with emotion with our words. And that's really challenging for some people. And I, I miss hugging people, man. I really need to hug. Like I miss hugging yeah. too. I mean, 
high fives, whatever, even a handshake, I can go without that. But the hugs, like, we got to bring those back somehow. I mean, like, it's just, I missed it. It was hard. We missed a couple really good stories because it just wasn't safe for that person. We are working with 65 plus individuals usually. I had one lady that was a, uh, one of the Ray Letts. She was, she sang backup for Ray Charles for 35 years. Oh, wow. And she was moving and she called me one night. She said, man, I'm just really worried. I'm afraid it's not safe for everybody to come here. And she had, she, she finally had told us she had, had not tested positive, but she was around people at her church that had had it. And I said, yeah, you're right. We can't come. It's not safe for you and it's not safe for us. And so that was a story I really super bummed to lose, but you just had to choose safety first. And I'm a big believer in like everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. So, I mean, I, honestly, I think we had our best season to date. I actually also filmed one episode of Hoarders during COVID and nothing changed because we wore our masks the whole time on Hoarders anyway. So like every, everything was the exact same on that show. I'm, I'm anxious to, we, we're delaying our, our filming a little bit, hoping that more people will be, will have been inoculated by then. Speaking of the pandemic, many families and individuals have downsized and decluttered their homes since they've had more time at home. What piece of advice would you give someone about to downsize or declutter? So I got a couple here. First one is take your time. It's really important not to rush through it because I really need you to share the stories. It's a lot. I mean, one thing I've learned doing this for 20 years, when you tell the story, people are more willing to either let go of the item or believe it or not, some generations now want that item. I think many of us are under the impression that our grandkids don't want our stuff. And that's not true. They don't know the full story behind it. They don't know the trials and tribulations and they don't, I mean, like I think about the things my grandmother went without during the war and how she saved and worked hard. And if I knew the full story, when I did find out the full stories, it was like, oh yeah, I really want that item. And as a kid, I, I didn't care about those things. So I, I tell people, share those stories, take your time to share them. And the third one people forget is you need to have an audience. So don't do this by yourself. You need to find it. You can do it on Zoom. You don't have to do it in person. I've had a lot of families that I've found out after watching the show, they started doing legacy list Zoom nights, which is grandma or grandpa would take an item, two or three items, and then all the kids get around on Zoom and they tell the stories of those items and all the kids get to hear them and they recorded it on Zoom. And so now they have that in their family archives. And I, I mean, that costs nothing other than time. And I just love that. I mean, kids, three generations are hearing stories from grandma and grandpa and it takes what, half an hour? You have to be patient and you have to set the time aside to do it. And I just think it's really important to share those stories because I've seen hundreds of families that come up to me and they say, ah, oh, I really wanted to record my mom's stories, but she passed before we got them. And you've probably got in that box of pictures that you just mentioned, how many of those stories go away when your mom passed away? Yeah. And so that's why I say, like, write the stories down. That's the that's the, the other one. Like, if you are the person that holds those stories, go through the pictures and just either tell the story into a into your phone or into, an, you know, some kind of recording device or even write down the names. Because a lot of us, once we pass away, those stories are gone. And we do have the time right now to do it. So, Matt, you're saying that the pandemic has 
influenced the way many people view their possessions in a good way. I think so. Yes, I really do think the pandemic has been good. I used to I was worried at the beginning that it would just create more hoarders. And what I didn't understand was how much family and relationships, how valuable they've become during the pandemic. You know, like we don't care about stuff as much as we used to. We care more about family time. For a lot of people, the pandemic's been a good thing. I know a lot of people that it forced them to get their life together. For a lot of people, it's been awful. Don't get me wrong. And I don't want to underestimate the the loss and the devastation for many people. But for a lot of families, it's made them closer. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I think that's been a good thing. And, and we were really lucky to have new shows during that because it's encouraged people and inspired people to share their stories and to tell their stories and to even go through that junk drawer and to go through that box of pictures. Do it one hour. That's more than you did yesterday. And I think that's a good, you do one hour a week and eventually, you know, you'll be through that box. And I, and it, I think it does let go of that guilt that you talk about. So many of us have this, it, it's a very generational thing, but so many of us carry this guilt of going through our stuff and you could do an hour a week right now. That's doable. Matt, you are not just a decluttering expert. You are a family therapist <laughs> and a philosopher. And I think it has just been a joy to talk with you. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be on your show. Matt Paxton is the host of the PBS series Legacy List. You can see new episodes every Wednesday at 5 p.m. on our PBS station, ATL-PBA. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.